pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have sustained us as your people at Christ Church for these 11 years. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do so. And as we look at what it means to be your church today as an embassy of the good news of Jesus Christ, I pray that the words we've just sung would bear witness through our lives, that the words of power that can never fail, that truth of the good news would prevail over any unbelief within us and those around our lives. Take our minds now and think through them. Take our lips now and speak. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to imagine that we're all on vacation together on some beautiful island. It's an awesome vacation. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, we hear gunfire, artillery rounds going off, and a military coup is happening. So we got to get to the American embassy because this is a mess. So in our PJs, we're running to the American embassy, and we see the American flag, and we say, oh, thank you, Lord. There's the American flag. So we go into the embassy, but there's no Marines. And we knock on the door, and some dude opens up the door, and he's speaking another language, but it's the American embassy, I thought. So we go to the hospitality room where I'm served some type of coffee, but it's not American coffee. And some type of tofu, it's not American food. And some type of vegetable, and it's not an American vegetable, it's some weird thing. And some fruit I have yet to ever name. This isn't the American embassy. What's up? They don't even speak our language. Many churches are like that. On the outward appearance, it may look like an embassy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but on the inside, it's not even close. We're in this series called The Church and You. And last week in our series, we looked at the focus that we have, our beautiful, awesome, amazing God who's revealed to us in Jesus Christ, who described himself as gentle and lowly, gentle He's the most tender, non-manipulative, non-abrasive person you'll ever meet. And he's lowly, the most approachable, accessible person in the universe. That's how Jesus described himself. That's who he is. Oh, he's holy. But he's gentle and lowly towards his people. And so today we turn from that revelation of who God is to seeing our calling to live in the embassy under his lordship. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is informing the Corinthian church and we who we really are in Christ. And in so doing, we'll be able to tell a false embassy from an authentic one. False teaching is creeping into the Corinthian church. And Paul wrote a letter earlier than this second letter to the Corinthians. And that first letter was met with mixed reviews. 
And we saw it in verses 11 through 15 that Paul's not going to, he's not going to make a false boast. He's going to boast about what really, truly matters. Not in his lofty language. He's just going to give people the straight good news of Jesus Christ. And so they're beginning to wonder to themselves, is Paul really an apostle that we, we should really trust? He tells them in chapter 3, are we beginning to commend ourselves again to you? Or do we need, as some do, let us a recommendation to you or from you? He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, known and to be read by all. In other words, he's saying to the Corinthians, and therefore to us, you're a living letter. How does your life read? And then the rest of the letter is all about how the Corinthians are to let their lives read. And so today, because God is that gentle and lowly and marvelous Savior, just to rest in his presence for who he is could be a lifetime of sermons. We're going to embrace, number one, the essence of the gospel, and two, we're going to dwell in the embassy of the Savior who's gentle and lowly. Let's look at this, shall we? First, Paul calls the Corinthians to embrace the essence of the gospel, the good news. He desires that they, they and us to live rightly with God. Everyone who believes in God wants to rightly relate to him. We all want to be assured of his goodness to us now and especially on, upon our deathbed. Now, if someone were to ask you, how do you know how to rightly relate to God, what would you say? It turns out there's two basic ways to rightly relate to God. And every religion follows one or the other. One way is to do it on your terms. What I, the emphasis is on what I do for God, in other words. is best captured by the word performance. Performance is all about doing things in order to gain God's approval. Interestingly, the commitment and determination required for performance does create a kind of goodness that we call self-righteousness. Now, none of us wants to be self-righteous, right? What we really mean by that is we don't want to be haughty, arrogant people like the Pharisees who we read so much about in the Scripture. We don't want to be like that. But we actually like regular, non-arrogant, self-righteous people. We like that they're good friends and good neighbors. We like our kids to play with their kids. Why? Because they act the right way. We aren't concerned with why they act that way. But Jesus, on the other hand, was repulsed by all forms of self-righteousness because he was concerned about the motives that drive the actions. Imagine a husband who's going to break a long-awaited date with his wife. She's been looking forward to this for months. But because he's got tickets to Augusta National, he's going to break the date and go play golf. Well, before he breaks the news to her, he goes and buys some flowers, 
some gift cards to a fancy restaurant for a future date. At first, she may be flattered and respond warmly, but when she discovers the true motive for his seemingly loving actions, she will be repulsed, and rightly so. In the same way, God is repulsed when we give to charity, attend church, volunteer in the community in order to get him to like us. He loves these things, but only when they spring out of a motive of love for him. Performance is giving God the things that he loves, yet with improper motives. That's one way to relate to God. The other way is to relate to God on the basis of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's all captured by the word grace. Grace refers to what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And upon the cross, God exchanged our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Do young people use the word swap anymore? You know, when I was a kid, we swapped baseball cards. I'll give you my Willie Mays for Pete Rose. You know, it was a term that I regularly use, and I don't know any other term today to make it more relatable for you. All right? We're go- the great swap is expressed in verse 21. For our sake, he made him sin. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. This righteousness is known as a declared righteousness because a person is declared righteous by God by the moment the swap takes place. Another term for declared righteousness is justification. You say, what does that mean? Think of it this way. Justification is just as if I had never sinned. Justification doesn't imply that we become sinless. Rather, it means that God pardons the penalty due for all our sins, and he forgives us. God not only likes us, he loves us unconditionally. And and of course, we can still offend him by our sin, but we go to him in confession when we do sin, and we experience the joy of a restored relationship, but nothing can alter his faithful love for us Because our right standing with him is based upon what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, not our performance. You see? Paul describes how this great swap resulted in forgiveness in verse 13 and 14. For if we are able beside ourselves, it is for God if we're in right mind. It is for you. For the love of God controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died for their sake and was raised. Consider this. Does the great swap leave you free to live however you please while being assured of your eternal security? Yes. It's kind of sort of both. The answer is no, if you mean that by a prayer of acceptance is merely just a prayer you prayed when you gave your life to Jesus at Bible camp or Young Life camp or you were confirmed because your parents made you get confirmed and you know it. But just like a wedding ceremony, the prayer, the confirmation, 
all itself doesn't create love. It must be the expression of a love that already exists. So where does this love come from? It is a newborn love created in the heart by the grace of Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us. At the great swap, that's what the Reformers called it. It's like a clothing term. It's imputed all over us. This newborn love is typically called faith. It's trust in God alone for the righteousness that he gives us. It's entrusting ourselves. Like last week we talked about the beanbag. That's what it's about. So the swap depends completely on what Christ has done for us, grace, not what we could do, performance. But the answer is also yes, because true believers are both free from sin's death and also free to live for, for their desires change. They now have the moral ability because of the grace that's given to them to perform for God out of a motive of love. And this changes performance from an expression of self-righteousness to a demonstrated righteousness. And if our lives don't demonstrate righteousness, then we really have never received Christ's righteousness at all. So where does our spiritual pilgrimage begin? Is it do or done? If you say do, you may indeed live an attractive moral and religious life, but it will not earn you God's favor and love. Rightly relating to God is based solely on what God has done. One embraces the cross, expecting to see a righteousness born of love demonstrated in the lives of all who embrace the cross. Do we struggle with this? Yes. Welcome to my club. Most people do. Operating from the performance love comes so natural to us. It just feels like we're supposed to do something in order to get right with God. Even if you are truly a born-again Christian you may still struggle with performance orientation in your relationship with God. For example, do you ever look back at your past moral failures and wonder if God still loves you? You do it again and again and again. Do you wonder that? Do you ever find yourself motivated to go to church, give money, spend time in personal worship because you worry that God's favor won't be quite the same if you don't? No, my friends. He loves you with an everlasting love, and it's all based on his atoning work on the cross by his grace. He loves you when you fail. He loves you when you succeed. So therefore, to fully understand grace and break out of the performance mode, you need to understand three biblical truths. Number one, we lost it all. Meaning all humanity has lost all virtue in God's eyes, not just perfection, but also goodness. If this is true that no amount of effort spent performing for God could ever result in us being good enough to earn his favor and earn his love. And deep down, we all know that we all should do a lot better at this thing, right? In fact, the Bible teaches that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The performance mentality doesn't believe that at all. The performance mentality would have you believe that we lost a lot but not all. Performance tells you that there is something good enough you can do to, and you must do in order to earn a right standing before God. So to break the trap of performance-based living, you first must embrace that you lost it all. Second point is 
Christ did it all. Meaning Jesus Christ did everything necessary to completely pardon lawbreakers like you and me. That means there's nothing left to be done. The grace of the great swap completely satisfies God and puts us in a right relationship with him. Performance thinking will tell you that he did a lot, but that we also must contribute faith and repentance out of our own goodness to make our salvation a reality. But the true gospel has no room for meritorious work of self-supplying any aspect of our salvation. The only thing a person can contribute to their own salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. <laughs> no, my friends, he did it all. We lost it all. He did it all. And the third point of God's grace is we get it all. Meaning that Christ, God gets the credit, credits the full righteousness upon us as his followers. Therefore, since we are forever forgiven of all past, all present, and all our future sins, we can be fully assured of God's unconditional love. It's a good deal. He also gives us everything necessary to live rightly related to him and to be fully satisfied in life and in eternity. Performance will tell you we get a lot, but not everything is needed. You can see that as long as our beliefs leave us with anything lacking, this becomes the breeding ground of a performance-based faith, which is not real. Only when we believe we get it all and embrace the grace that comes via the cross can we expect to rest in him and to accept that what he did for us was enough. And brothers and sisters, that's the essence of the good news of the gospel. And so therefore, Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, there's some expectations upon those who believe that and follow that and rest on those three points of grace. He says we're called to live in the embassy of God. And each and every one of us are his ambassadors. Paul can be our example in this regard. He understood that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus called for a drastic change in the way that he looked at the world and it ought to change the way we look at the world. He says in verse 16, For now, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning from a worldly concern, from a worldly point of view. And what Paul means is that he simply can't continue to pursue life and relationships in the way that he once had. As if the cross was a trifling matter with no impact on the world. The crucifixion and the resurrection was a truth so compelling, it required a thorough reorienting of his life purpose. In fact, he sees this truth as a call to all people to not only believe in Christ, but to be his ambassadors to the broken world in which we live. We don't look at our neighbors where we live, work, and play as just Joe Schmo. They're, they're going to live forever. They have a soul. Their body's going to go in the ground, but their soul, their mind, their will, their emotions, their spirit, that's what the soul is, is eternal. No, we look at people with God's perspective. Do we have that perspective? Many of us must admit that we're far too engaged in what we call 
what I would call so what pursuits. Imagine a millionaire telling you how excited they were to earn $38 in their garage sale. I've got $38. You're a millionaire. So what? Right? What, do you, what does that matter? You're worth millions. Yet perhaps we, like that millionaire, pursue the trivial to the neglect of the monumental. The two most common so what life pursuits that capture people's attention are enjoying one's world and impressing one's world. Enjoying the world or trying to impress the world. To those two pursuits, God says, so what? His design is that people respond to his victory by living in such a way that they impact their world. Is this your approach? Notice verse 14, he says, Christ's love controls us. The NIV says Christ's love compels us. It's a compelling story, isn't it? What Paul means is that as far as his life and goals are concerned, Christ's love for him has become the compelling principle in all our lives. In other words, Paul and we live in a response to Christ's love. And he also says that Christ's love is an imperative to all believers that they should, verse 15, no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them, their sake, and was raised. So we must think about that compelling, controlling principle of our lives. And then where does our allegiance truly lie? He's beautiful Savior. <laughs> Is it to live for the kingdom of our beautiful Savior or for ourself and to the world to which God says, so what? Think about that. If you're a Christian, you would at least know what you would want your answer to be. I don't think you guys would be here at a very inconvenient time on Sunday morning if you didn't at least want to live for the kingdom. Is it because you determined out of your own goodness that this is the right thing to do? I don't think so. I think the actual reverse is true. It's Christ's love for you poured into your heart that's made a change in who you now are. Notice in verse 17, he says, you're a new creation with a new moral ability that you didn't previously have. And as a new creation... God calls upon your new moral ability to change what you do so that your life impacts the world. For you, like Paul, life won't be what it's meant to be until you've embraced being an ambassador for Christ. All of us are ambassadors wherever we go. And the local church is an embassy. Well, what do embassies do? An embassy is where a nation or a kingdom sends representatives of that kingdom into a foreign land. The United States Embassy has a flag outside of it, a couple of Marines fully armed and loaded to protect the ambassador as well as any Americans who need refuge. The embassy does things on the authority granted by the nation of origin. 
The ambassador doesn't speak for him or herself. The ambassador speaks for the President of the United States or the king. The embassy can establish and confirm citizenship. And it's a refuge for the expats who are in need of that refuge in a foreign land. And all embassies and all nations have a way of marking their citizens, right? The ancient Jews, the Israelites, had marks of citizenship in God's kingdom. They were circumcised. They kept the law, which was totally unlike the people around them. They had special dietary habits that they observed. All as a way of marking and identifying who they are as God's people. Does God's kingdom today mark its citizens? Absolutely. Jesus marks his citizens of his church by how? Baptism. Growing up into confirmation. I want to encourage all our high school students, once you hit ninth grade, it's time for you to profess your faith. If you've never professed your faith and you're receiving communion, on what basis are you worthily receiving communion? We're called, we saw here, to confess our faith in Paul's words. Just because we walked down an aisle and gave our life to Christ, what does that mean? No, my friends, let's take that step. But it's a, it's a mark of belief. It is, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. I encourage you to do so. And when you are baptized or when you're confirmed, it doesn't matter whether you're American or a Briton or a Nigerian they can all come and be a marked of a greater, a higher priority kingdom of Jesus Christ. Another mark is the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful experience it is each and every week to gather around the table together as God's people, reminded that it's not on our own merit that we come to the table, but it's on His merit and His love expressed to us. And when we come forward as individual families to receive it and to be blessed for those who haven't received it yet, we do so as a church family. Even though we're all part of different communities, work communities, school communities, sports communities, clubs, organizations, this is the community that God has made and our ultimate allegiance is to it because it's eternal. Our coming around the table as a family, as an embassy, is demonstrating what it means in a small way to belong to one another. You commit to something. We belong. We show up. And if it's physical, you can reach out and touch it. The church isn't a building, but yet we'll have a building one day. You can walk by it and you can see it. And don't be surprised what the world's response to it is. They'll look at the building and they'll say, what a joke. That's pathetic. you got to be kidding me. The world has always laughed at the gospel and people of the gospel. That's normal. But let us keep in mind Jesus' words in the parable of the mustard seed. It always starts off small, but it's going to be huge as we walk by faith as his ambassadors. A third mark is simply the preaching of the gospel. The proclamation under his authority. This is how the king exercises authority over his people. You didn't come here for my opinion. You don't want my opinion. 
I don't want to give you my opinion. I want to be faithfully speaking the word of God to this, his people. Paul says about it as Scott preached when I was gone in August, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We're ambassadors of this greater kingdom. All different personalities, all different types and stripes. So instead of any so what life pursuits you may be currently pursuing, set your heart on the kingdom of God growing in and through you. Abandon the counterfeit glories of this world which are fading and worship Christ as your only hope of glory. And put your, to rest your efforts to earn God's love and rest in the grace of what he has done for you through the cross. And recognize your union with Christ and surrender to the control of his spirit. And as you do that, you're his ambassador. Right where you are. Follow Jesus Christ as God's only eternal truth who is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And make it your life pursuit to be that messenger of his truth as his ambassador. So ask yourself this afternoon, what does it mean for me to be an ambassador? Where I live, where I work, where I play, your, your address is a sovereign appointment by God. Your workplace is a sovereign appointment by God. Your hangout is a sovereign appointment by God. And if you struggle with this ambassadorship, I want to encourage you to note in the back of the bulletin in October, we're going to have a sharing one-to-one -one workshop. Friends, we can't do the Christian life the way we've done it these past 15 years. We can't. We had 230 people in the fall of 2011. 230 on a Sunday. We're 100 today. Okay? You know, I've reached out to them. I know some of you have reached out to them. They're not coming back. So, so who are the people we have a burden for? I, I got to share with you. On Thursday nights, I play golf at Sweetbriar Golf Course with a group of guys who drop more F-bombs in one Thursday than I hear all year long. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> that was me. That was me. You have a calling upon you, and I'm reaching out to these people where I live, where I work, where I play. And I'm bad. I'm no good. But the point is, every one of us go as his ambassadors. So in October, we're going to do sharing one-to-one -one workshop. I want you all there. Please, come. We're going to talk about my failures. We're going to talk about my successes. We're going to learn from one another because it's not the same as it was last year. The culture keeps shifting in the ways you change conversations into a good news conversation. And finding just being a Bible turner takes all the pressure off of you. All you do is turn the page and say, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? That's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's amazing how the Lord opens people up through his word. Come and join me. You know, we get excited about all types of so what things, right? I mean, the guardians are hot. They're so exciting, you know? I'm staying up late watching 14 innings, you know? My goodness, they're, they're so fun to watch. They're 9-1 in the last 10 games. The Buckeyes are 3-0 and ranked third. 
Well, did you know the Browns are 1-0 since the first time since 2004? And if they win today, they'll be 2-0. That's the first time since 1993 where Bill Belichick was the coach. So what? So what? Have you heard that new song by Cole Swindell? It's awesome. Have you tried this? We get excited about things, and they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. This is the ultimate. We're ambassadors. So therefore, Mr. and Mrs. Ambassador of Jesus Christ, let's walk together in his embassy for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this call that you, for our sake, Lord Jesus, were made to be sin who knew no sin so that in faith in you we might become the righteousness of God. That is good news. It's what you have done. And as we are clothed in your righteousness, Lord, we pray that we would shine your light to this dark world, that we would be salt to this bland world. And Lord, that you would just continue to do a mighty work in and through us, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.